Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. You <laughs> fan, word up. That biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or words blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. All right, welcome everybody to another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and I actually will not be joined with my lovely co-host, my wife. She is uh, off taking care of the baby today, so it'll just be 
uh, it'll be me, and uh, we actually have a couple of guests that are coming up, and uh, we'll jump to that in just a moment. Um, well, you know, welcome everybody again. I appreciate, uh, you know, we seem to have a pretty good faithful audience. Uh, we get uh, a good number of downloads every week, and we just want to thank you guys for taking the time to come in and listen to the show. We try and try and bring you guys, uh, you know, top quality guests, people that are scholars in the field. Uh, last week we had Dr. Cordwin, and that was actually a, a very well uh Okay, sorry about that there, folks. Had a little technical difficulties with the phone, but uh, I am back. Um, but I wanted to remind everybody, uh, go to facebook.com slash with the Palouse. It's facebook.com slash with the Palouse, and you'll be able to access, uh, we put articles up through the week. Uh, you'll be able to find our podcasts. Uh, on through the week, uh, where we've done you know numerous shows, we've had some some pretty prominent uh, guests on. We've had Dr. Norm Geisler. He came on and actually gave his testimony uh, of how he how he became a Christian. It's really fascinating if you've not heard it. Uh, we've also had uh, philosopher and apologist uh, Paul Copan, who's written several books and. Uh, done several debates, and uh, he came on, and we did a whole thing uh, for about an hour and a half, uh, going over objections to the Christian faith, and I had a pretty lively discussion between him and an atheist that had called in, so we got a lot of good shows, we've got some, some former debates we've done with uh, Roman Catholics and uh, Protestant on Sola Scriptura, uh, as well as... Uh, Mormon and a Protestant on the view of God. So be sure to check out our uh, Facebook pages. We have some, some good stuff with that. So what to bring on uh, before we get into the show today, and the, the show we're actually going to be looking at uh, de- uh, decision-making and the will of God. How do we know God's will our lives? Does he have a specific plan for every God speaks through impression. How exactly does God speak to us? And what are some of the biblical texts imply that um, God is still speaking through impressions and uh, those type of things? So we're going to be looking at that in more detail. But first, I wanted to bring on a friend of mine. Uh, we've done this a while back where we've been bringing on people that we know who've influenced us. And... Uh, good friends, people that we know are solid, and have them kind of talk about how they came to know Christ, uh, what they're doing in their ministry right now, and uh, exactly how theology and apologetics plays an important part in their lives. 
So my friend, uh, his name is uh, Father Thomas Gordon. He works at St. Andrew's Theological College and Seminary, and he is part of the Orthodox Anglican Church, and he leads the St. Philip the Evangelist uh, Anglican Church. And you can find more uh, about that if you're in the Charlotte area at charlotteanglican.org. Hello, Father Gordon, are you there? Yes, yes. Uh, hello, Devin, how are you today? I'm doing well, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, um, I'm grateful to be on your show and excited uh, to talk to you. Oh, I'm, I'm very grateful you're willing to come on. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. Great. Did I uh, did I get any of the details wrong there? Or was I right on uh, on where you work and in your church and that? No, you did it. You did a great job. Uh, I'm I'm the rector at St. Philip the Evangelist Anglican Church here in Charlotte, and I also serve uh, the National Church as a a suffragan bishop. Uh, and uh, I work uh, spend most of my time during the week with St. Andrews. So you got everything just perfect. Great, and uh, you're married, right? And uh, you have kids. Married and have uh, three sons. Uh, they're uh, they're uh, growing up quickly. I got a couple of them in college, and uh, one's still in high school. So. Oh, wonderful! That is great. And we met actually. Uh, I met you through my wife, uh, uh, Melissa Palou. She's uh, <laughs> she thinks an awful lot of you. You guys actually met, I believe, through. Uh, 40 Days for Life, is that correct? Yeah, um, the uh, 40 Days for Life campaign, we've, uh, as a parish, uh, been involved with that and uh, been out there praying at the uh, local abortion clinics. Uh, and um, so I I, uh, I think the world of uh, Melissa and uh, just uh, think the world of what you folks are doing, both whether it's in the uh, pro-life work here in town or the apologetics ministries here in town and uh I'll tell you i think if we had uh had some more people like you in town we could take over this town <laughs> <laughs> oh thanks uh thanks father gordon we appreciate that kind words kind words i thought we'd start maybe with you kind of telling us about your life uh growing up and how how you came to know the lord did you uh, grow up in a christian home or yeah um I grew up in a very Christian home. Um, my uh, my mother was a Christian school teacher at a fundamentalist Baptist Christian school, and my father was an evangelical Presbyterian minister uh, in North Central Pennsylvania. Um, so I was baptized as a covenant child, and I made a pro- public profession of faith at five years old. Uh, a woman named Mrs. Peacock used to have a a uh, Bible club. Uh, up the road, uh, there was a trailer park up the road, and she used to have a Bible club for uh, young children, and um, that's where I made a public profession of faith uh, at a very young age, uh, and I've um, uh, been, you know, living uh, uh, my entire life as a Christian, and I know many times we make a big deal out of people who have dramatic conversions, but uh, I think uh, God's people need to be very grateful for uh, the children that uh, are brought up in the faith and nurtured in the faith, and um, we should not 
I downplay that at all. Absolutely, I think you're I think you're right on point with that. It's all a work of sovereign grace for sure, you know. Whether <laughs> whether God resurrects someone from the dead who died old or a or a baby, uh it's still no less a miracle. Absolutely. So I'm curious, how uh, how exactly did you get into the ministry? Well, it's it's kind of that's a very long story. Um when I uh, was a senior in high school, I um, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. and um, I visited uh, Cedarville University, which is a, a Baptist college in Ohio, and uh, I just fell in love with the place because of whether it was in the chapel services or in the classes, uh, they took the Bible seriously. They, they studied the Bible seriously and took it seriously, and I wanted to go someplace and learn the Bible um, the way these people knew the Bible. And uh, so uh, that was a a big and important step for me. And at about 18 or 19 years of age, I I really did feel a call to ministry. Um, But I did feel, I did feel, uh, what what should I say, very young and inadequate uh, to be doing uh, that type of thing. And, uh, so that did go by the wayside. I um, I uh, entered military service and served in the first Gulf War. Um, got married, uh, had three children. <laughs> um, life, wow. life intervened uh, for for a good number of years, um, but that call never went away. Um, for me, uh, Luke twelve forty eight: uh, For unto whosoever much is given of him shall much be required. Really. Uh, weighed heavy on me uh, over the years, and I felt like I should be doing something with all that God had given me, all the instruction and um, things I'd learned, and that uh, I really should be doing something with those. And uh, finally, uh, uh, the Lord uh, gave me the grace to uh, get started back on the path, and um, so after about a 10-year delay, I got serious about pursuing the ministry again, went back to school, and and that took uh, a good number of years. But uh, um, uh, I was very pleased uh, when I was uh, finally ordained. Um, and I was about 40 years old when I was ordained. So uh, uh, there there has definitely been a lot of uh, energy. You know, one of the things uh, when I – first started uh, um, you know in my interest in pursuing the ministry I told you I sort of hesitated because I was I was immature um, but the good news is that being older I had had more exposure to to um, some of the problems that uh, face the American church and um, I began to develop some real convictions you know based on scripture what what the church should be doing and what the church should be emphasizing um, in this age uh, uh, to encounter uh, to counteract the problems that the church is having, and uh, I think one of those areas is is exactly what you're doing the area of uh, you know basic Christian apologetics. Um, you know, as you go out there and you start to share your faith and talk to people and even talk to Christians. Um, it becomes so hard to 
have even any sort of theological discussion, uh, even with Christians, because so many of them just don't even know the most basic, basic doctrines of the faith. Right. Like, like the Trinity, like the Trinity, for example. This uh, this coming Sunday on the church calendar is Trinity Sunday, but uh, so many Christians don't even know the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and that means yeah. that they really don't even know the God that they say that they worship uh, and the God that they love. Um, and so, apologetics is something that was really uh, something that I feel as I went into ministry that I needed to emphasize. Um, and the other area uh, was in, in worship itself. And for me personally, uh, you know, when I would look at and read the writings uh, of the church, uh, you know, go back to the time of the Reformation, uh, people like uh, Father Martin Luther, John Calvin, or Archbishop Cranmer, the people today who claim to be the heirs of these reformers, uh, they have worship services that bear little or no resemblance uh, to the worship of their forefathers. And, wow. And this is where there's a disconnect because I don't believe that's an accident, this area of a lack of knowledge of basic Christian doctrine and the change in Christian worship. Right. And uh, I believe the traditional worship forms of Christianity reinforce those basic Christian doctrines. Amen. Yes, I find that and so that's... frustrating. I find it so yeah. so frustrating when talking with other believers uh, who just uh, they have no idea what the creeds are. They think they're absolutely worthless. They're not important. They're dead. Uh, they just they just that was one of the things I've visited your church. A few times, I just love the style of worship, the emphasis on the emphasis on the, uh, the creeds. I just I love the liturgical style service. I think they just are so important because as you're doing, you know, the creeds, um, and I've heard it said before, the creeds are like a fence that safeguards the church and keeps heresy out. When you're when you're repeating the creeds and you're learning the creeds. You know, then you're going to learn about God. You're going to learn theology. You're going to learn doctrine, and you're not going to be able to help but to know the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. We we so. use you know for example we use the Apostles' Creed at our daily prayer services, and then for uh, our Eucharistic services, our Sunday communion services, uh, we always uh, say the Nicene Creed, and then. A few times a year, we'll break out the Athanasian Creed. Like this Sunday, we'll say the Athanasian Creed, and wow. uh, so those they're they're important guardrails, and and um, it's not it's you know it's not just enough to be exposed to them. Uh, continually bringing them before God's people is important. Uh, they're guardrails on the faith. I think I think that's that is absolutely right. Tell us a little bit about the about the Anglican Church and the specific denomination uh, you're in. I know there's pretty, I guess there's probably a wide uh, variety. Uh, one of the Anglicans I just I love, I can't get enough of his work is uh, J.C. Ryle. I just love his right. work and his books. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, what the Anglican Church uh, is or. Or whatever you feel is relevant uh, to the conversation on that. Sure. Well, uh, when we talk about the Anglican Church, we're talking uh, about those churches which grew out of the Church of England, 
Um, their Christianity came very early uh, to uh, the British Isles. Um, some of the first uh, councils of the church where there were representatives from the British Isles there. Um, so uh, the Church of England uh, goes back, uh, you know, almost two millennia. Um, and, uh, of course, many people think uh, they think of uh, the Church of England with reference to either Henry VIII or... Uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth I and and the Reformation and uh, the break with uh, the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, Anglicanism is mainly centered around uh, the worship of the Book of Common Prayer, worship from the Book of Common Prayer. To practice the faith according to the Book of Common Prayer is to be an Anglican. In the last century, people have tried to redefine that, but but that's. That's really what it is. And uh, what we see happening uh, here in the United States, uh, uh, many churches have split into many different denominations. But that was not the case with Anglicans here in the United States. Uh, uh, Until you get to the 1960s, there was only one substantial break from the Episcopal Church here in the United States, and that was the Reformed Episcopal Church. And then uh, the second to break from the Episcopal Church here in the United States was the Orthodox Anglican Church. We were founded in March of 1964, and uh, so we will next year celebrate our 50th anniversary. Um, At uh, at that point in time, you had uh, Bishop Pike, who was the Bishop of the Episcopal Church out in California, and he was denying all sorts of basic fundamental parts of the Christian faith, things like the virgin birth, etc. And uh, the bishops of the Episcopal Church were unwilling to discipline him, and uh, a number of Episcopalians at the time felt that uh, uh, that is apostasy and, and that uh, they needed to uh, break with the Episcopal Church. And so that's how our church was founded. And, of course, the Episcopal Church has gone from bad to worse since then. And uh, like like uh, like many other uh, traditions, uh, there have been other churches founded since ours was founded. Uh, when they started ordaining women, there was a whole other group of churches that left. And when they uh, consecrated a gay bishop, uh, a whole other group of churches left. Uh, so there are a number of uh, Anglican churches out there who are not aligned with the Episcopal Church or the Archbishop of Canterbury these days. Just, just curious because I know a lot of people um, when they see an Anglican church um, uh, thinks it uh, like Catholicism. What are the differences between, uh, for instance, the your church and uh, the, the typical Roman Catholic church? Well, um, uh, with with a, a traditional Anglican church, what you're going to find is that many of the worship forms and things seem very Catholic. Um, And by that I mean Roman Catholic. But if you're careful to look at the words, the words are carefully shaped. Um, For example, there are are prayers in a Roman Catholic Mass that that, uh, obviously do not fit with uh, Protestant theology. Um, that, That is not true with with the traditional forms uh, of the Book of Common Prayer. And we use the 1928 Book of Common Prayer and also the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Um, so 
what you have is something that is a very traditional service, which to a modern Protestant would look very Roman Catholic. But our doctrine is Protestant. It is it is uh, it is Reformed Catholicism, if you will. Um, wow. We like to say that we uh, we practice the faith without uh, Roman Catholic additions or Protestant subtractions. And there you go. Um, uh, so that's uh, pretty much where we stand on that. Um, the emphasis on our particular jurisdiction is uh, on presenting Christ in word and sacrament. Uh, there are many places out there where you can go and attend a, a very beautiful liturgical service, uh, but you're not likely to hear the faithful preaching of the word. And there are many churches out there where you're likely to uh, hear a good sermon, um, but it is essentially a lecture um, that there's not any real worship going on, uh, praising God for his acts and attributes. And, you know, people will say they'll sing about bowing the knee to Christ, but they never do literally bow the knee to Christ. And so <laughs> in our worship services, uh, uh, they're very uh, uh, people. It's hard to fall asleep in one of our services because you're kneeling or you're praying or you're standing uh you're doing something all the time. Uh, it's not a spectator uh, sport. You're not there to hear a lecture. Um, you're involved in worship. I like that. Yeah, I, I do. I think you make some, some definitely some valid points. So, in wrapping up, um, got got about uh, a minute or so left. Um, tell us the need. What what do you see as 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 the need for the church today? What are some of the pressing issues that you see uh, today for the church, and how can we stem the tide, or how do we correct it? Well, um, uh, I believe that uh, one of the things is is one of the emphasis uh, of your ministry, and that is uh, to, to um, you know, give people the tools for, for uh, you know, encountering the world. I know when my son, my oldest son, um, he attend, he's a senior, he's a rising senior at a state university. Um, when uh, in the year or two before he went off to college, uh, I would give him uh, apologetics books, uh, uh, most of them popular works, but some of them scholarly works, and he would actually read them. And so as he goes off to an to college and encounters uh, the onslaught against the Christian worldview that you find on the college campus today, uh, he was ready for that. And uh, we need to do the same with all of our children that we're uh, teaching, but also adults. They need to uh, know uh, what the challenges are going to be, and they need to be prepared for them. Uh, setting expectations is a it's an important, very important thing, um, and giving them the tools. And so we need to be doing that across the board and uh, you know whether it's uh, providing people apologetics materials books or you know lectures debates or documentaries or whatever it is it needs to be something that we're constantly uh, working on and uh, the other is you know again going back to to practice of the church i think uh, you know simple things like the doctrine of the trinity in a traditional Anglican service, the doctrine of the Trinity and things like that are reinforced over and over and over and over again. Wow. And I think the liturgy itself is a powerful tool in reinforcing orthodoxy. It's not it's not foolproof. 
Um, but uh, it is a very important tool. Um, it served the church uh, well for uh, many, 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 many years. And uh, I think uh, while we can improve on many of the things we do, uh, we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. I uh, think that we're smarter. Think we're smarter than all our forefathers put together. <laughs> well, that's very well said. Uh, tell us, give us the, the website for your church, and uh, maybe the times and that that uh, you guys hold service, so uh, so people uh, in in the area uh, can come check you out. Sure. Um, St. Philip's uh, Church here is here in Charlotte, and it's at 2908 uh, Oakwood Drive uh, here in Charlotte. And that is really close to almost anywhere in the city of Charlotte because it's near the intersection of I-85 and I-77. Uh, you get off 85 at Statesville Road, uh, go one mile to the north and hang left on Oakwood, and uh, we're on Oakwood. Um, and... Uh, so it's it's easy to get to, and the website is charlotteanglican.org, um, and uh, our the Orthodox Anglican Church's website is orthodoxanglican.net, and uh, we'd love to uh, see folks out to visit, and uh, uh, you know we're always happy to have visitors, and uh, you don't need to be worried about uh, attending the service because it is it can be intimidating if you've never been to a service like that, but. Uh, 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 we're we're happy to have uh, visitors and allow them to check it out and uh, let's see what it is we do and I'm more than happy to explain what it is we do. So, well, great, Father Gordon. I really appreciate you uh, you coming on and uh, I'd like to have you back on in the future and maybe we could do uh, do a teaching on some on some theology, some theological aspects. Absolutely, I'd love that. Uh, I'm always happy to uh, help you folks out any way I can, and uh, God bless you for all your work here, whether it's in the pro-life cause or uh, your apologetics ministry. Those are two things that are very dear to my heart, and and uh, you folks are definitely dear to my heart. And uh, God bless you and bless your ministry. I appreciate that, Father Gordon, and we'll uh, we'll be in touch, and uh, we'll get you back on the on the show. Say hello to the family for us. I will do that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's a good friend of mine, uh, good man, and uh, does a lot of a lot of stuff with the gospel. He's out there standing in front of the abortion clinic, praying, uh, sometimes all by himself. And, uh, you know, he loves God and he loves people, and uh, we need definitely need more men like that. So what I'm going to do right now at 6.30, I'm going to go ahead and take a break, a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to have my friend Brendan Helms, uh, who's on the line right now, actually. And uh, we are going to dive into this topic of decision-making in the will of God. How do we know, uh, or can we know, God's will for our lives? Does he have specific plan for our lives? Does he speak through promptings or impressions or... How do we find the voice of God? This is a big issue. It's a big deal. And uh, we we plan on uh, on tackling this the best we can. Of course, it's a hot-button issue, and uh, there may be many folks who disagree, and that's okay. Uh, it's uh, it's not a uh, essential of the faith. It's something that we can agree and, 
and disagree on. It's one of those non-essential issues. Uh, but non-essential does not mean not important. And as we'll see, um, there's some real dangers um, that can happen if you're not grounded in God's Word. So we're going to go ahead and take a break, and when I come back, we will have Brendan Helms online. We'll be ready to start our show. Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.crossexamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to His prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace.
Welcome back to Theology Matters. Uh, today we're going to be discussing discussing the issue of decision making and the will of God. And with us, my friend Brandon Helms, uh, who's actually been on the show before. Uh, we did a show on, I believe, it was the reliability of the Bible or reliability of the New Testament. Uh, he's a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, he's an associate pastor at Macedonia Baptist Church in Lincolnton, North Carolina, and uh, just a just an all-around good dude. He's got some uh, wonderful wisdom and knowledge, and uh, we are glad to have him on the show. Brandon, are you there? I'm here. How you doing, man? Doing pretty well. How about yourself, Devin? Doing good. Can you hear me okay? I I can hear you just fine. Okay, good. Sometimes we have technical difficulties, and I'm not aware of it. So, uh, did I leave anything out there, Brendan? Do you have anything you want to add, or maybe talk about your family for a second? Uh, let's see, I have a wife, Chelsea. We've been married for it'll be uh, six years uh, this June. Um, a daughter, Addison, who will be uh, three uh, this August. Um, we uh, say we live in Monroe, North Carolina. Um, and as you said, uh graduate of Southern Evangelical and uh pastor at uh Macedonia Baptist over in Lincolnton. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I gotta tell you, man, I have been really excited to do this show. You know, this is uh this is an issue that's kinda near and dear to my heart. Um I grew up in the uh, in the Pentecostal movement in the Assemblies of God and uh you know, a lot of fine uh, a lot of fine Christians and pastors there, but uh, a lot of times uh, I was confused with this issue of how to know, how to discern God's will for our lives. And uh, I think another issue as to, um, shouldn't be, I guess, whether God speaks today or not, because I think we would all agree that he does, but how God speaks uh, sure. to us. So. How did you get uh, what what got you into this uh this topic? Well, uh, actually it was a very uh very uh, personal practical aspect that really got me to take a look at this. Um I, I, I honestly again you know, on this issue of and I, I guess it'd probably be good to I guess at least briefly sketch out the, the issue at hand before kind of going into my background on it. Um sure. you know, all, as you said, all Christians believe that God talks to us, that God has a, a will. Um, and when people talk about the will of God, uh, they they mean normally one of three things. You know, the first being God's sovereign will. Um, you know, effectively uh, everything that happens falls in God's sovereign will, from the wonderful, glorious things of life to the terrible things of life, all fall in His sovereign will. Um, and then we have God's moral will. And when we think of the Ten Commandments, um, various commandments that Jesus uh, issued, uh, you know, love one another self-sacrificially, uh, various exhortations that uh, the apostles give, all would fall in God's moral will. And effectively, they're just moral instructions. And all, uh, I want to I say all Christians believe that. I maybe want to put a little bit of a caveat on that. But for the most part, all Christians believe in God's sovereign will and God's moral will. 
the, the debate comes over this last category, and that is God's individual will. And it's, it's, it's kind of this idea that God has this ideal, detailed plan uniquely designed for each person. And it's our job as humans to discern what that is. Um, and, and I think one of the major advocates of this position, by most people who are at least somewhat familiar with him, uh, is Henry Blackaby and his book, Experiencing God. And Blackaby talks right. about, you know, using signs and um, having at times a sense of peace about things, and it's, that's how we know God's individual will. Um, you know, things like, who should we marry? Where should I go to college? What job to take? Things like that. This is the point of the debate. Is there such thing as an individual will of God. Now, uh, in terms of how it brought me into this uh, issue, um, I really wasn't raised one way or the other. Um, I actually uh, found out um, once I had made a shift in my position, and I was talking to my dad about this, and come to find out he held to this position, but it wasn't something that I was taught Um so he, my, you know, my dad holds holds to again what the, the other position was what I'll refer to as the wisdom view, and I'll flesh out more about that in a little bit. Um, sure. But I, I kind of just I guess almost by default held to um, the your normal standard individual will of God. Um, again, I, I can't ever point to a time where I was taught that. Um, I don't know if it was just hey being in kind of an average Christian culture, you know, just picking up. Things and ideas and just, you know, going with it, um, hearing respected and, and people to this day that I very much respect um, endorsing this view to some extent and having no reason to question it. Um, but what really brought me to the point of coming to question it um, was, uh, I guess it was now about four or five years ago, um, I was going through uh, the ordination process. Um, and in that process, yeah, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to divulge the church I was ordained at or any of the individuals involved, um, but one of the questions I was asked very early on in the conversation was, talk to us about your calling. And the notion of a calling uh, and the individual will of God kind of go hand in hand, you know, it's the idea that God has called you, you know, he's individually told you that you should be a pastor, and I remember when I was asked that question, I kind of, again, I had always held to this idea, but it kind of struck me as, well, huh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I have this this calling that's being talked about. And right. I kind of remember sitting there feeling kind of awkward, and I kind of uh, uh, squirmed my way through the question, and basically wow. by the end of it, everyone was like, oh, okay, all right, we can move forward. And I remember reflecting upon that later on that afternoon, thinking, wait a minute, I, you know, I, I honestly kind of just, you know, scored my way through it, and everyone was okay with the answer I gave. Um, so I started look, looking more into it, and um, some, uh, a friend of mine pointed me out, pointed a book out to me uh, written by Gary Friesen uh, titled Decision Making in the Will of God. And uh, Dr. Friesen in this book challenges um, the, the idea that there is an individual will of God. Friesen holds to the view that there's a sovereign will of God, a moral will of God, and any other decision 
that we make that is not a moral decision. You know, uh, for example, if I'm if I'm trying to make a decision between killing someone or not killing someone, well, I don't have to think any further about it because clearly it's immoral. Um, the decision over what college I should go to is not a moral decision. So I am God gives us freedom to make a wise decision on that matter. Um, and it was really through actually going through the ordination process that um, it was kind of the final, I guess, uh, in my uh, experience, I guess the nail in the coffin for converting fully to the wisdom position. Because about midway through the, the ordination process, I was strongly leaning towards that. And it kind of came down to my final, uh, I guess, uh, ordination council session where they had several pastors there that were grilling me on different things. And the first thing I was asked was, you know, tell us about your calling. Well, I went ahead and decided I was just going to answer it from a wisdom view perspective. I wasn't going to challenge the other position. I was just going to answer it, um, pointing out that I have a desire um, I meet the qualifications of being an elder, there's a need here, and so forth and so on. And everyone said, okay, great. And what I realized there was, in my answer, in no way did I uh, answer in a way that would be, uh, you know, what was the word I'm thinking for, that really aligns with the notion of a calling. And it was kind of there that I realized there's a lot of, just even for people that hold to the view, there's a lot of confusion about it. So right. for me, that is kind of what brought me into it. It's just been a very simple, personal, practical situation. Let me ask you this, Brendan. What would you say today um, is the dominant view? I would, there's, I think in terms of, I think it's going to depend on if we're talking sheer numbers or the environment we're in. If we're talking just sheer numbers of Christians, I think the individual will is your most popular. Now, right. the next thing I in say, I don't age. say, I don't, what's that? Yeah, in today's, in, in, in America right. today, sure. it is not probably, wasn't well, like that always. Right. And the one thing I would add in, and I don't say this for for other people on the other side, this is not intended as an insult, um, but I, I I have found in more academic circles, you know, in seminaries, for example, you see more of a leaning towards the wisdom view. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't apply to everyone. Again, there are very intelligent, um, devoted Christians. Um, uh, you know, uh, I can think of um, Chuck Swindoll. It kind of has a somewhat of a traditional view on this, um, not not quite as much as Henry Blackaby, but Chuck Swindoll kind of leans a little bit that way. Um, so there's you know guys like um, you know, Dallas Willard who recently passed away. Da- uh, Dallas Willard kind of has like a hybrid of the two. It's kind of he, he synthesizes the traditional and wisdom. Um, so so I, I don't want to I don't say that to say well anyone that holds to the traditional notion that there is this will of God for individuals uh, it's not that they're unintelligent people um, just an observation about that you know it does in certain environments there tends to be more of a wisdom view than others. Did we did we kind of define what the what the wisdom view is? Do we want to do that now? So yeah, maybe know. if I didn't, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, well, even if even if I did, I'll go ahead and state it again just to be just to be clear. 
Um, yeah, just so they the know you, clear yeah, The wisdom view agrees with the uh, other view in the sense that there is a sovereign will of God and a moral will of God. But in, instead of saying that there's this individual will, you know, for example, you know, God you know, says who you should marry, and I, I really should marry that person. The wisdom you says on the non-moral issues, you are free to choose, but you should choose wisely. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, hello? I'm here. Yep, I'm, I hear you. Yep, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, go go ahead. You said uh, on the wisdom view. No, yeah. It's... Yeah, the yeah, the I guess the, the final point there being that on the on any decision that is not a matter a matter of morals. Um, you know, uh, what's what sandwich am I going to have for lunch today? Right. I'm I'm free to choose and I'm to use wisdom. Now, for example, if I know that I'm allergic to peanuts, I shouldn't have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because that would not be wise. Um, it, it's not a sin if I do, but it's just an unwise decision. Um, but if I'm not allergic to peanut butter and jelly, I'm not allergic to ham and cheese or turkey and cheese, hey, I'm free to choose as to whichever one I want. Um, and that basic idea could be extended out to matters of who are you going to marry, what job are you going to take, uh, what college are you going to go to, things like that. Okay, that makes uh, that does make sense. And I, I guess Providence would probably play a role in, in this as well. Um, Absolutely, and, that, and that's that. one of the. Go ahead. No, no, go right ahead. Well, this, I think this is one thing that pe- that is a criticism that people have of the wisdom view that it it puts God out of it, and in and, and no way um, is that the case. I, I gave I, I gave a talk on this one time, um, and uh, someone in in the audience, because um, I. I Eventually, one thing that almost always comes up on a talk about this is, you know, who are you going to marry? Because that's you know one thing that a lot of people hold to who hold to the individual view is that God has this specific person in mind that they should marry. And so that's one thing that always comes up on this whenever I get talks on this. And so the it's not denying that God has any role in it. And I, I always point to how I met my wife Chelsea. Um, you know, we met um, at a high school football game. Uh, where I normally would have sat was filled up, no seats left. So I actually had to go. It was that we were actually my high school was playing her high school. Uh, we were at their high school stadium. Her high school was not good at football. My high school was. So we had more people at the game than they did. So our visitor side was much much was over capacity. So me and my friends went and sat on the home side because they were the only seats available. Again, no one wanted to really go watch their team because they weren't any good. Where we sat, uh, I happened to see another group of friends of mine. I sat with them. So they were already sitting there. This group of friends that I sat with were friends with my wife, Chelsea. My wife, Chelsea, was a cheerleader. During halftime, she came and said, hey, to my friends, through that we met. So God was working in that situation to bring about me meeting my wife. But right. the difference between what the individual will of God people will say 
And the wisdom view, people will say, is the individual group's going to say, well, that was the one. And had I chosen not to marry her, marry someone else, for example, um, I would have been outside of God's individual will. As someone who holds the wisdom view, I would say, well, no, I could have chosen to not marry her. Um, I'm glad I did. But I could have chosen to do that. And, uh, again, as long as I wasn't compromising some biblical principle or uh, some principle of uh, natural law theology uh, in, in another woman I married, that would have been fine as well. Um, and I, I honestly think you know, there, there really is, and one of the things that my wife and I talked about is, for us, the notion that we are the ones who really chose each other, I think is much more powerful than the idea that God selected her for me in the sense that, well, had I picked someone else, I would have messed up. That there really was me choosing her out of love. Because um, for a lot of people, that, uh, that the issue of marriage is, is, a, is a big sticking point on this discussion. Right. Absolutely is. Before and for a lot of times, this angers angers Christians very, very much. So they get very emotional and very angry about this. <clears throat> Why do you think that is? What do you think the perceived well, issues are that they're getting so angry about? I think sure, and I think, that, and you know, I'll throw out one. You know, I'm sure that this. Might, I think this would be people, and I'm sure for other people, you know, we could come up with different scenarios. But I think for a lot of people, you know, if you've lived your life in this way, making decisions in this way, you are having to admit that you've been making decisions in in a way that simply didn't fit with what Scripture was saying. Um, And uh, if we're able to kind of get into it, it it really does almost turn into – And I don't say this to insult anyone, but it does kind of turn into a very illogical way of making decisions. And, again, for someone who has been making decisions that way for a large percentage of their life, um, and, you know, they've been taught it in church by very respected individuals, um, people that even – people that I would say that I would respect as well, it's very hard to give up. There's uh, very much an emotional – aspect to that that says, you know, I'm not willing to give this up. Um, I gave the talk one time, and there was a guy in the audience who he had recently decided he was going to go into uh, some type of music ministry. I can't remember if he was going to do, but I can't remember exactly the scenario, but he was going to do some type of music ministry. And he believed that he was called by God to do that. Um, And so I gave this talk, and he basically said, I agree with everything you're saying, but how can you believe there isn't a call? And I was kind of like, I didn't really even know how to respond to it. Because like, well, you're agreeing with what I'm saying, but there's, there's something there that emotionally didn't want to be let go of. Um, you know, maybe for some people it is the idea of, well, I can have a lot more confidence in making a decision if I know this is what God wants. You know, there's 
an element of risk, if you will, in, okay, I'm the one who has to make the wise choice here. Versus on the other side, well, God's the one that's already made the decision. I'm just, I just got to figure it out. Right. Yeah, and that's 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 gonna be very dangerous. Absolutely. Uh, I know that uh, these uh, there's a lot of, of texts that people will go to uh, to try mm-hmm. and support this view, and some of them on the surface look, you know, pretty pretty persuasive. And um, I think sometimes we forget, you know, that uh, you know, with I'm thinking between the New Testament and the Old Testament, you have what was it, 400, 600 years uh, where God just simply didn't speak at all. And um, some people, some people, I, I, I think they uh, they say God talks to them more than God talks to the prophets. And uh, again, I think it's it can be problematic. But um, let's look maybe at some of the some of the, the texts that are used uh, to support sure. the traditional view. Yeah, I think probably the the most famous. Um, and uh, it, like you said, it, I think this is one of those passages where um, it, it is very convincing um, at first glance. And I'll, when I read the passage, you're gonna anyone listening is gonna say, "Well, yeah, of course that teaches that God has this individual will for our lives." And that's Proverbs three five through six. And I'll read out of the ESV where it says, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart." And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make – I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually shouldn't have read out of the ESV. I needed to read out of the King James Version. I have notes in front of me. I apologize. The King James Version says this. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not until thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So people look at that. He shall direct your paths. Clearly God is saying he's going to direct you in life. And, you know, acknowledge him, and you can find out this path that he's laid out for you, which seems really clear. But there's a problem here, and it deals with this last phrase, he shall direct thy paths. Um, probably most of our Bibles, and I was reading out of the King James, probably most English translations have this phrase, he shall direct thy paths. Now, if, you're re- if someone's reading out of the ESC, they'll see that it's not translated, he shall direct thy paths. It's translated, he will make straight your paths. Again, it's basically the same thing here. Virtually every commentary and Hebrew lexicon confirms that the correct translation is, he will make straight your paths, not he shall direct thy paths. Now, it might seem like, well, that's not a huge ordeal. What's the difference between he will make straight your path versus he shall direct your path? Well, the phrase he will make straight your path is actually a Hebrew idiom. And what it's used to describe is it describes the general course or fortunes of life. So this means that you will experience a blessed life by God's standards if you trust him and his wisdom, which is very different than the idea of him directing your path. So it's not that God, again, based on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it's not that God is directing your path, but what it does mean is that he is blessing your path, which is a very different idea. Which, again, fits very well with countless passages in the New Testament where God says, look, 
you know, if you if you love me, you stay in fellowship with me, again, I'm going to bless you. Now, again, does that mean that he's going to bless you with money and a nice car and nice clothes? Uh, maybe, not necessarily, though. Um, but there will be a blessing from it. And, and that's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is talking about. If you acknowledge God, um, if you don't lean on your own understandings, he will bless your life, again, according to his standards, not necessarily ours. Right. Let me open up the, uh, the phone lines uh, for those maybe who want sure. to call in and have some have some questions uh, or disagreements. We welcome your calls. Uh, the number is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Like we say, you know, we know this is a, it's a hot issue and we're not trying to come across as smug or arrogant or you know, smarter than anybody else, but it's an important issue, and it's uh, it's the one that needs to be addressed. It's not a, essential, of course, but again, just because it's not essential doesn't mean it's not important. And so, let's keep going through some of the text, uh, Brandon. What's what's sure. in the other yeah. one? Um, let's see. Um, let me do. Uh, try to, again, this is one of the things where um, you know, if you read through Black, one of Blackie's books. Here he cites a lot of different scripture. Obviously, I'm not going to have time to go through all of them. I think Psalm 32 8 is a good one, though. Um, here, and I'll read out of King James to start with. Uh, it's Psalm 32 8 says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. The ESV, on the other hand, translates says this I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, one thing I would note here, just as a general immutable principle, um, if the only passage someone can find for a doctrine comes out of a psalm, I would be cautious upon building on that, simply because it is poetry. Um, now, again, that poetry can be used to express truth. It's not downplaying the Psalms. It's just a general caution. It's, it's, you know, if you can't find a teaching anywhere else outside of a Psalm, at least be cautious in trying to build a doctrine based on that Psalm alone. But anyways, the, I think the, the preferred translation here is, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, see, what? here's the problem, though. The traditional view, where there's this individual will of God, assumes that God is the speaker in this passage. The context, though, it's not God, it's King David. So it's not that God is the one doing this. This is King David that's the one talking. And this is, a, this is basically the same idea. Uh, they do uh, The traditional idea uh, that there is this individual will of God the same thing is done with Isaiah 30, 20 to 21. Um, we see um, that it says here in Isaiah 30, 20 to 21, although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, uh, it's a capital he in the NASB, your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher, your ears will hear a word behind you, this is the way, walk in it, and whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Well, this pronoun, this capital he, the problem is there's no pronoun present there in the original language. 
when the full context of Isaiah 30 is taken into account, it's much better to understand the teacher to be Isaiah, not the Lord. And so this is a, a, it's a, it's a common mistake made. And it, it's not necessarily anyone intentionally doing it. Um, but again, if you're looking at a given translation that doesn't accord well with the Hebrew or Greek, um, yeah, I mean, when you read out of the NASB and you see that the he is capitalized there, your teacher, you know, you know, it seems that it's the Lord talking, you know, that it's Yahweh. Um, but, um, again, you can look, for someone who want to look up the ESV, they would notice there isn't the pronoun he there. And the reason is because in the original language it's not present. Now, again, a lot of times in our translations, pronouns are inserted that aren't in the original text. Just to help us understand it. Um, again, a lot of times when you take a direct translation from Hebrew or Greek, it's awkward. Um, so, you know, words are put in there just to help the, the sentence flow together in English. So that's not necessarily a terrible principle, but at least in those two situations, it does uh, distort uh, what's going on there. Um, so I think those are kind of the big ones. There, there are passages in the New Testament that talk about it as well, where you do see, talk, see where it's talked about discerning the will of God and things like that. Um, the, the problem is it's, it's often just assumed that what that means is this I, the idea of an individual will of God. Yeah, I think that's that's well said because it's like you say on, on the surface, you read the text, and uh, if you're not reading the whole context, <laughs> then things can certainly look a little uh, little slippery. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see, Romans 12, uh, 1 through 2, I know is another one that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, Romans 12, 1 through 2. Yeah, yeah, it says, um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, the question is, which of the three wills is it that is to be discerned here? Um, we can't discern the sovereign will of God. We can't know that unless the only way we would know that is if God revealed it through prophecy. I mean, you know, you think of uh, predictions about the coming of the Messiah. Well, okay, clearly there are situations in which we can know the sovereign will of God, but God has to reveal that very specifically, and it's always done clearly. Um, so we the sovereign will of God. So the question is, is it the moral will of God, or is it the individual will of God? And again, the key here, as with any passage is the context. Uh, we know in chapter 12 of Romans, this marks the beginning of the second major section of Romans, and that section runs through chapter 16. Um, we see in, the, in chapter 12, verses 3 to 21, I won't read all of it, but I just want to highlight a few things that it says here. In verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine, abhor evil. Hold fast to what's good. Uh, we can skip down. Uh, do not be slothful. Skip down further. In verse 12, be patient. In verse uh, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. Uh, in verse 15, rejoice. Verse 16, don't be haughty. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Uh, skipping down to the end of 21, do not over. Do not be overcome by evil. So this is the, the context that's being set here of the moral aspect of what we are to do. 
So, given that that's being talked about here, the will of God that's to be discerned is the moral will of God that is, again, is being talked about there in Romans 12. And when you get into the Romans 12, 1 through 2, when it says, what is the will of God that you are discerned? Well, in verses 3 to 21, we get it. It's immediately what Paul starts talking about, these various moral things that we that we are to do. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I just I guess I want people to see um when you really do break down some of these uh, verses that are often used, it's just it's not it's not um supporting what they think it is supporting. It's not making the case for what they think it is. But um Right. There's a, and there's actually, I'll, I'll say this for anyone that's wanting to you know, look more into this topic, which I encourage you again, if someone if if I convince someone of this, you know, don't just take my word for it. Go go look at it yourself. Um, if someone's questioning, or if you think I'm an absolute idiot and I'm I'm completely off base, nonetheless, you can still uh, read up on what I'm talking about here. There's three books I would recommend. First one is by Henry Blackaby, his book Experiencing God. That that gives you probably the the standard uh, position on the idea that there's an individual will of God. The other one, and I already mentioned Gary Friesen's book. Um, uh, oh, geez. It's bad that I can't remember the name of the book that kind of drew me to the topic. Um, you said Gary Friesen's book? Yeah, Gary Friesen's book. Holly. Um, decision Making yeah, the Will decision. of God. There, yes, there we go. Uh-huh. The Decision Making the Will of God. The other one, and this is a great one. Um, several years, about two, maybe three years ago, um, in part of the CounterPoint series, they came out with a book on this topic. Gary Friesen contributed a chapter. Uh, uh, Henry Blackaby and his son, and I forget his son's name, contributed a chapter. And there's another guy, in, uh, his last name's Smith. Um, I, I think they got him to do it because they didn't want to have a two. They didn't want to have two views. They wanted to have three views. Um, but so, anyways, in this, you have the different positions. They lay out their arguments for their position, and then the other guys have an opportunity to critique them. Um, so that, that's a, I think a really good, or that is a really good place to look at, to really see, you know, really just compare them side by side. Well, let me ask you this. What are, and, and I'm curious, has, has Blackaby written, um, like, any refutations uh, or, or tried to refute uh, Friesen's view? Uh, and uh, uh, also... Uh, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead and answer that, and then I'll ask the second question. Out, outside of the, the CounterPoint book, I'm unaware of if he has. And he, he may have, and it's just my ignorance that uh, – so I, I, I don't want to say that he definitely hasn't. Yeah, I mean, I know he definitely has in the CounterPoint book, um, but I, I'm unaware of if, he, if he's actually written you know, a full book uh, or even an article um, trying to directly counter it. At least and, um, the point book. Is is he probably uh, the biggest proponent or best defender of that view? <laughs> well, um, again, you have several different, and this is one thing that's always good to point out is, you know, I'm kind of pointing out, putting it out there that there's these two positions. But obviously with anything, you know, you have a, a gamut in between them. Um and actually, on Henry Black or not on, on uh, Gary Friesen's website, he kind of uh, 
breaks it down into different kind of he puts it on a uh, a uh, a scale if you will and um so you have the traditional view again being that there is this individual will of God and yeah guys like Henry Blackaby would fall in there uh, Tim LaHaye would fall in there uh Philip Yancey uh would fall in there then you have uh tr- what he calls the what uh, Friesen calls the traditional view with wisdom leanings. You have Chuck Swindoll uh, would probably be the big name in that category. Um, then you have the synthesis, uh, which would be um, uh, Dallard Willard would probably be the biggest name. Again, uh, Dr. Willard passing away uh, recently, but he's probably the biggest name in that camp. Then he, then he has what he calls w- the wisdom view in traditional vocabulary. Um, big names there would be uh, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer. Um, and then you have the wisdom view, obviously himself, uh, Guinness, um, R.C. Sproul uh, would be uh, in there. So there, there, the is, there is. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, what would be the difference uh, between like a John MacArthur's view and Friesen's view on this topic? Because I've, I've actually heard it's some not that it's not early. there's a there's really not uh, a huge difference, and I, 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 I have to be honest. I haven't read MacArthur specifically talking about this issue. I mean, I've read things where he's alluded okay. to it in passing. Um, but in, in things I've seen Friesen talk about, it seems that the difference is just in the terminology that's being used, that they're basically saying the same thing. Um, you know, and I, I think maybe uh, what a lot of it is is that, you know, and there's there's an element where, you know, hey, if we can if we can use the same terminology – you know, people won't be quite as upset. Um, so I really think that's really the only major difference there. Um, it's just, you know, um, and then that's kind of the fourth that that fourth category that he puts MacArthur and Packer under is it's the wisdom view in traditional vocabulary. So they're basically saying the same thing, but it's just, you know, they're they're trying to use the terms of the individual will camp to. You know, I don't know if it's to maybe try to keep them a little happier, things like that. I don't know. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, number, again, for those wanting to call in, 760-542-3907. Tell us your thoughts. What do you guys think? Do you guys agree? Do you disagree? Uh, what's your experience uh, with this? Have you guys held to one view or the other? Have you uh, guys had uh, struggles with one view or the other? We want to hear from you, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. I guess let's get down to the practical level, uh, Brendan, and, and that would be what are some of the practical problems for uh, the traditional view? Yeah, and I think there's really, with practical problems, there's kind of, I guess, three categories of them. Um, and, there's all, and I'll kind of just mention the three, and I'll talk about the three of them, and that's uh, problems with ordinary decisions, problems with equal options, and then immaturity. So we'll, we'll talk about the ordinary decisions first. So the traditional view, again, the idea that there's this individual will of God for every person, it draws a line in terms of when to discern God's will. So and it, I would say it's an arbitrary line. And, and this is one thing that in the Counterpoints book that uh, Blackaby talks a lot about is that we are – we only have to consult God's individual will 
on what, what the big decisions. But the question becomes, you know, no one waits to hear God's will over what shoes they're going to wear in the morning or what they're going to eat at breakfast. You know, no one does that. You know, they, they do it for, you know, jobs, uh, college, uh, spouses, things like that. You know, you know, what we might call the big decisions of life. But it seems to me that that's, that's arbitrary because it seems that um, God, wouldn't God care about every aspect of our life? And a bigger, I think a bigger problem with it is how do you know when the little, what you thought was a little decision was actually a big decision. And, and I, I go back to them, mentioned earlier in the show how I met my wife. I think most people would say, and I, I give this example a lot on this issue, is where you sit at a football game a little decision or a big decision? Well, I think most people would say, well, that's a little decision. But if where you sit at a football game leads to meeting your spouse, well, that what you thought was a little decision was actually a really big decision. And so I think this is where you see just the very impractical nature of it to where you really can't consistently do this. You know, no one can. I mean, unless you're going to wake up in the morning and say, okay, God, what sucks? And then when God right. reveals that to you through a feeling or through some sign, then you put your socks on. Okay, God, boxers are briefs this morning. Okay, thanks, God. Now, which pair of boxers? All right, God, should, it, you know, should I wear shorts? Should I wear jeans? Should I wear khakis? What color of khaki? You know, you're never going to get out of the house. So there is some of just ordinary decision-making um, that seems rather arbitrary. The other one is that the traditional view, it rules out the possibility of equal options. And I think you know, really simple examples point this out. If I lay out a pair of identical brown socks on my bed tomorrow morning, I cannot claim that it doesn't matter which pair I choose to wear, even though they're identical, because there is, in this individual will notion, a better choice. So if there's, you know, um, such a thing as equal options in socks, why would there not be such a thing in careers and college choices? So there, in this, this, in this framework of there being an individual will, you, you, it can never be said that there are equal options. Now, again, that doesn't prove that it's wrong, but it really is just a very practical problem. You know, if you were to, you know, I think back to for myself, when I was choosing where to go as an undergrad, um, for, for anyone listening outside of the state of North Carolina, this, these schools might not uh, ring that much of a bell, um, but I was basically had it narrowed down to Appalachian State University and the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, I was going to be running cross country at track, cross country and track at either school I went to. Um, I'd been offered scholarships at each school. Uh, they were both reputable in what I was planning to study. Really, for all intents and purposes, they were equal for what you would, you know, for what you want out of a university. Well, you have to say for the individual will, that they really weren't equal options, that there was a better choice, even though they appeared to be equal. Um, and then the third one is this notion of immaturity. And I always give this little uh, fictional story here. Imagine your best friend calls you on the phone tonight and tells you 
that she met a guy this morning, and they both feel that God revealed to them that they should get married immediately. What do you do? Well, if you embrace the notion that God speaks to us this way to tell us what to do, you should give them your blessing. But what person right. is not like, well, that's, that's crazy. No, no, no. You just you just met this morning. You you can't get married yet. You know, you know, unless there's someone pointing a gun to your head saying, get married or you die. You, you know, you don't need to get married right now. But given this traditional view, you should say, okay, go for it. That's great that you, you know this. So um, immature believers, bottom line, they tend to make immature decisions. It's not a knock on immature believers. It's just where they are in their spiritual development. But oftentimes, these young believers are incredibly anxious to follow God, which is a good thing. It's a, that's a great thing. But they can often make unwise decisions because of the newness of their faith. Now, right. we wouldn't let, or at least, I, at least I hope we wouldn't let, a new believer be a pastor of a church. But if given this notion of the individual will, if he feels called to be the pastor, why should we stop him? You know, there's not a good right. reason to. Uh, right. But there, there's a level here. You know, again, you know, you, if, if if this position is correct, you can't argue with God, even if you think it's the worst decision in the world. You just can't. Um, I think other aspects are, you know, it, you know, planning. You know, is a waste of time. You know, there's no reason to plan for something if God's the one who basically all you need to be doing is sitting there waiting for God to reveal to you either through a feeling, an impression, or some sign. You know, you don't need to plan for your future. You just wait for God to tell you, you know, what to do. So I think those are really the three um, big ones as to the, just the practical problems. Yeah, and they, they do affect people in their daily lives for sure. Yeah. Uh, kind of. Uh, let's see. Let's go ahead and, and let's look at. Um, let's do this. Let's let's take some time and um, give us the principles again of the wisdom view. I know you've you've kind of went over this a little bit before, but what are some of the principles yeah. of the wisdom view? And maybe you know, yeah, I would so encourage people to listen. You know, write this. Write these points down. It'll greatly help you yeah, as you encounter sure, these sure. decisions. Uh-huh. So. So let me let's um, give a brief summary, and then there's really there's three principles. All right. So the wisdom view says that there's only two wills of God: His sovereign will and His moral will. So we must follow His moral will. Anything we do outside of God's moral will dishonors God. Anything we do inside of His moral will is acceptable to God. And on those decisions, we have to use wisdom. Excuse me, wisdom. Now, there's three basic principles. So here's the first principle. In those areas specifically addressed by the Bible, in the revealed commands and principles of God, again, what we might call his moral will, those are to be obeyed. Again, this is an expression of God's moral perfection, and it's fully revealed through Scripture and nature. Again, we can – here's just some examples of his moral will. Again, his moral will is love. It's humility, integrity, diligence, eagerness, generosity, submission, courage. It's not lust, pride, guilt, irresponsibility, laziness, selfishness, cowardice. 
So, you know, again, you can go through, we can spend countless time looking at passages of Scripture where talk about this. Um, principle two, though, because you know, principle one is really the easy one. You know, well, it's kind of, you know, everyone agrees with that. Of course, you know, if the Bible says do it, you can do it. If the Bible says don't do it, don't do it. Not really rocket science there. Principle two, though, in those areas where the Bible gives no command or principle, again, what we would call non-moral decisions, the believer is free and responsible to choose his own course of action. And any decision made within the moral will of God is acceptable to God. And let me explain this in a little more detail. Effective lawmaking requires the assumption of freedom of choice and activity within the designated limitations. All right. So basically, we don't have to search for biblical support for everything we do. Uh, for example, David used a horse and chariot, and there's nowhere in the Bible that says you can use a horse and chariot. Um, I'm assuming that, at least in our country, in America, uh, pretty much every church uses electricity. Well, you can't find anywhere in the Bible where it says, feel free to use electricity. There's lots of things that we do that the Bible doesn't talk about. And again, and that's, of course, we have to, you know, maybe we might have to look at bigger principles. Um, uh, from the Bible to talk about certain issues. But, you know, there's certain things that just bottom line, the Bible doesn't address. And again, as, as long as we can't find a, a bigger principle that might pull it under a moral umbrella, you know, we're fine. And there's lots of scriptural support for this. Again, Genesis 2, 16-17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Again, don't eat of the one tree. Anything else is fine. You don't have to ask me about any of the other trees. You're free to eat from them. You don't have to ask me on a daily basis what you have to eat or what you should eat. You're free to eat them whenever you want. Um, see, we can think of uh, Matthew 20, 13 to 15 says, But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give. <laughs> excuse me. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Yeah, you know, it's coming out of a, a parable that Jesus is teaching there. But you have the statement here: Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Again, on the individual will of God uh, position, you would have to say, well, no, that's actually not true. It, that is not true because what you should do is consult God on every one of those occasions to figure that out. Um, let's see here. First um, Corinthians ten twenty five to twenty seven says, "Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience." For quote, "The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof." If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So again, you don't have to sit down at the meal and consult God about what you should or should not be eating. Now, again, I think there's uh, a really good way to think about this, and it's uh, kind of like a bullseye. If you have, if you have a, a dartboard, you can think of the dartboard as God's sovereign will. Anything that lands on the board, those are just the events that take place. Anything that happens. And within that, Again, this obviously would not be a standard dartboard. You have another circle. And that other circle is God's moral will. 
anything that happens outside of the moral will, God, he, he, yes, he allowed it to happen, but he didn't desire it to happen. Murder, theft, rape, um, you know, anything like that would be outside the moral will, but it's still within that circle of the sovereign will. And anything within that moral will, you have freedom of responsibility. Or you, sorry, you have freedom and responsibility. You're free to do it, but you are responsible for it, which is what brings us to principle three. In the non-moral decisions, the objective of the Christian is to make wise decisions on the basis of spiritual expediency. Now, that really is the, the, the big question with the wisdom view is, okay, well, how do I do that? How is it that I what – are, what, are what are some basis for making wise decisions? I think we can really look at you know, three, three different things. We can look at the examples of the apostles. Um, we can look at some exhortations of the apostles. And we can actually go about acquiring wisdom. Excuse me. Right. Yeah, I think those are all uh, very wise and important points. And, and a lot of it is just, you know, God has given us common sense. He's given us a brain. He expects us to use it. And uh, a lot of times I think, too, I've, I've seen this view uh, really hurt people's faith. I've, I've even seen it, uh, you know, affect people in my own family where they, they make a decision that they are just sure God is telling them to do, and uh, it turns up being a, being a terrible decision, and they end up harboring uh, anger towards God over it. Mm-hmm. And so, right, yeah, and I think that's a, um, you know, it's kind of one, of, and I think there's you know, lots of scenarios we can put out there, and I think, um, you know, one of the ones I like to give is, you know, you have a lot of churches who hold to this view also tend to be congregational in nature, you know, where uh, for major decisions of the church, the congregation votes on them, and, you know, whatever the majority says, that goes. And I like to ask, you know, uh, last ask people in this scenario, well, if this position is true, why is it that whenever the congregation votes, some, you know, I, you know, I get that, you know, maybe not everyone agrees because we might, they might say, well, that person wasn't in fellowship with God. They were sinning, so that's why they couldn't discern God's will. You know, what about times when there's just really big splits? You know, yeah. are you going to say that the problem was that half the church is involved in, you know, just grotesque sin? See, that that's not the case. So why is it that, you know, when everyone who holds to this the same view you shouldn't, you know, again, given the nature of God, we're not going to say that God's confusing, that God's the deceiver, that God's a liar. What was the problem? Yeah, I mean, you know, unless you're willing to say that, well, just half the church was involved in terrible sin, it seems that the problem might be the system itself. Yeah, um, and I think what like you hit on a good point is where, where when people do see this happen, and again, they expected to have God reveal this to them, and after the fact, it kind of in some way blows up in their face. And the person sits there and says, well, God, I know I wasn't sinning. I really tried my best to uh, search the signs or search the feelings that God was giving me. You know, I was waiting for this sense of peace, and I felt I had it. But, man, that, that went bad. It really went bad. Well, you know, and like you said, people get upset by it. You know, they... 
uh, you know, not not necessarily going as far to question the existence of God, but you know, maybe questioning their relationship with God, um, casting doubt um, on their relationship with God, things like that 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 aren't needed. Um, yeah, again, there's of course a perfect time and place for really checking your relationship with God, but other times there's not. And I think what this oftentimes leads to is people, you know, as you said, having, you know, all sorts of problems with their relationship with God developed. Let me ask you this, because, you know, I grew up, again, in an Assembly of God Pentecostal church. One of the things, uh, you know, I know people, they have good intentions, and we're not trying to uh, purposely, you know, mislead me or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I, I frequently remember being told, uh, for example, with prayer, that prayer is not a one-way conversation. Prayer is a two-way conversation, and when you are speaking to God, um, you need to, to be quiet and clear your mind and listen to the still, small voice, and God speaking to you and you speaking to God, and, and it's a two-way conversation. What do you say to those types of, uh, of statements? Yeah, and I think that there's um, there, there's a couple things there that could be talked about. One is asking people, well, first off, where do you get the idea of this still small voice? Um, and, and what people often point to um, is, again, you have the passage with God. Um, and I'm trying to remember talking to Elijah or Elisha. Um, and off the top of my head, I can't remember now. Um, and it makes reference to God spoke to him in a still small voice. And that for, that for me, for e- even after, even after I had come over to the idea of the wisdom view, that was one passage I really struggled with trying to make sense of. And why is the wisdom view? Because it says, hey, God's speaking to them in a still small voice. And well, as people are saying, yeah, God's speaking to me in a still small voice. It actually wasn't until I took Hebrew, and purely, I'll say purely by the providence of God that this came about. In the Hebrew textbook we were using, at the end of every chapter, there was a, some Old Testament scholar would write a brief one-page article using the tools that you, were just, that you just learned in that chapter to execute the passage. Well, one of the passage, one of the chapters ended with exegeting that passage, where it's talking about where it's God talking in the still small voice. Come to find wow. out, come to find out, the word here that is translated "still small voice," and this is just I, this is one of the things where with, you want to say to people that were bringing about the Hebrew language, you're like, oh, I don't know why you would do this to yourself, but anyway, this is the way it works. The same word can mean one of two things. A still small voice, or a loud thunderous voice. You're like, why? You know, why on earth you want to have one word that means two polar opposites? I don't know. But anyway, so the, the word has these two meanings. Well, obviously, you know, the, the problem here is the only way to determine which it is is the context. And one of the things that is noted um, among, um, again, as this article explains in the, our Hebrew textbook, is that. One of the common usages when it is the loud, thunderous voice is when it's God talking in a position of power. And in this setting, that's, what, that's what's happening. So the one passage where people will think, oh, here's God talking in a still, small voice, likely that's not even what's meant to be there. 
It should be that God is speaking in a loud, thunderous voice. And I'll say to anyone, if God speaks to you in a loud, thunderous voice, listen. You know, if you're sitting around and you hear God thundering a command to you, yeah, you should listen up. Because um, yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, and a lot of people say, well, you're saying that God, you're putting a limit on God. And I'm not putting a limit on God. I have no problem with the idea that God could, if he chooses, to truly speak to someone. But that's different than what is spoken of in the Blackaby language, um, of uh, God speaking to me through a feeling of peace or God um, speaking to me through silence. It's a very, that's very different. And it, it's maybe a nuance that's slightly missed. Because people say, well, if you're saying God can speak to you through that way, why couldn't he speak to you through this other way? I'm obviously not putting a limit on God there either. God, of course, can choose to speak to someone any way they want. The problem's going to be, let's say that God, let's just say for the sake of argument that God did speak to someone through their feelings. How, first off, how would you know it's God speaking to you? And secondly, how do you know what that feeling's supposed to mean? What is the external reference point? Um, because, you know, again, there's people that have talked about you know, real, having religious experiences, you know, for, you know, thousands of years now. And I, I'm, I'm perfectly open to the idea uh, of someone having you know, some type of mystical experience with God. The, 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 the issue is if you're going to take anything away from that, you have to have something to measure it by. So, for example, if someone has a mystical, some type of mystical experience and they come to say – that is God, but in that, God was hateful. That's what they felt. They felt hate. And so they conclude that God is hateful. Well, we could measure that against Scripture to say, well, that couldn't have been God. Now, be the person says, man, you know, I was, just, I, I, was in a real, I was just in a heavy state of depression, and in, in a moment, I just, I, I, it almost says, I can't even, and the person even saying, I can't even put it in words, but I felt the presence of God. I felt his love. I felt his comfort. I felt his forgiveness. Uh, yeah, obviously, I can't argue with them about that experience. That's something that was obviously 100% private to them. But I would say, well, that's per- in perfect accordance with what we know about God from Scripture. So that could right. have been. But again, that's very different and I, from what is being said by the, the idea of God communicating to us about to do specific <laughs> things through signs and through a sense of Peace, if you will. So that's kind of the common one here that you, you know, you'll, you'll get a feeling of peace about it. Yeah, you hear that a lot. Uh, I was actually talking to a friend today about that, and um, you know, one of the things I said is, is just like you're, you're saying, you know, we can't say God, you know, couldn't speak to somebody uh, like that, um, but if he did, it's, it's not something that's normative. You know, I think Greg Kokel, who has an article. Uh, on his on stand to reason, where he says, you know, a lot of these people, you know, God talks to them more than He talked to, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, that's that's just not ever how God has, uh, you know, interacted with mankind. Right. So, you know, and one thing I'm, I always say with with the idea, again, you know, I have a, a friend of mine, um, and we we actually he's a mutual friend. I won't give his name out since he you know, didn't give me permission to. Um, but you know, he, he was sharing with me one time that he was actually at a restaurant, um, 
and he said that he out of out of nowhere, so not out of not out of nowhere. This person, the waitress walks up, and out of nowhere, he had this. He said he did. He said I don't know how to put words to it, but he said I, I just had this desire to tell this woman that God does not view you the same way your father views you. And he said just the woman was just you know overcome by this and. Obviously, very clearly, somehow the, this this woman had a very disturbed relationship with her earthly father. Um, he he didn't get all he didn't talk to her about any of the details. But clearly, this was an issue for. Her. Now the question becomes: well, Where did this come from? Was it just absolute luck that he just happened to have this? Oh, huh, I really feel like telling you that God doesn't view you the way your father does. And just so happened, she also had to have this really bad background. I'm willing to say that that was God somehow bringing that for him to say. The difference is, this is where this is a this is a, this is a, a nuance that, that has to be really considered. There was something to measure it by whether it was true or not, and that, of course, being this woman's reaction. If the woman looked at him like, uh, "Me and my dad have a great relationship. Uh, uh, we're going to go have a coffee after work. We do it every every night, actually." Well, clearly we would say, well, that was – wherever that came from, it wasn't from God because <laughs> um, right. it wasn't true. But on matters of, for example, where should I go to college, what would you have to measure that again? And that, that's where I think it, that's where it does become this issue of – that makes it very different from other situations because um, you wouldn't have anything in it, you know, it's it, if God were to literally appear to someone in a vision in some way, you know, for example, like he did with Moses or, you know, even, um, you know, times with Peter and Paul, you know, that would be a different scenario. That would be different. Um, but, again, that's not what is at least normally talked about. If someone's claiming that, you know, God has literally appeared to them in a vision, I mean, again, you have testimony of uh, Muslims. Who have said that God has, or that that Jesus has appeared to them and proclaimed the gospel to them, um, right. and they didn't appear to be under drugs, they didn't appear to be dehydrated. Uh, uh, it seems that that definitely wouldn't be demonic, because if it was demonic, they would pre- preach the false gospel, not the true gospel. Um, so it seems that yeah, hey, was it Jesus? Was it somehow an angel appeared to them? You know, was it a vision? I, yeah, I can't obviously I can't be an ultimate judge of that. But I think we could say that what that experience was, was of God. But again, we have a measuring stick. And that measuring right. stick would be, well, what does the Bible say about the gospel? You know, if the guy, if, if, the, if in this uh, apparition that the Muslim had, you know, this being told him, hey, to be saved, you've got to uh, hike across the Sahara Desert and put sand in your pockets to be saved, and the guy came back and said, yeah, Jesus appeared to me, and that's what he told me. Well, we would say, well, that's, you know, I don't know what that was, but it wasn't Jesus, sorry. Um, because we have an outside standard to measure it against. Yeah, I think the I think that the way where the person lives geographically says a lot, too, because, you know, somebody that lives, for example, in a, you know, predominantly Muslim world, maybe where they've not heard the gospel or the gospel is illegal, you know, sure. I, I could totally see God, you know, Jesus manifesting in a vision or something and communicating the gospel. But, you know, right. in America, you got, you know, more Christian radio, more Christian TV, more Christian bookstores, more Christian books, more church. I mean, 
an abundance of, you know, no shortage of, you know, being able to open up the Bible and hear what God is saying as to where some of these other countries where they may not even have a Bible. You know, so Mm -hmm. I think geography plays a part in that too. Sure, it definitely could. Um, And it's one of the things where, you know, when talking about, you know, experience of that nature, and this is always – having a conversation with uh, another friend of mine who I think had probably a similar upbringing as you had, you know, and now he's um, uh, he's kind of out of the more uh, Pentecostal. He, is, he described it, it was even beyond that. It was even cultic uh, aspect to it. Um, but he said, you know, the he said, he said even now with the training I've had, um, you know, he's been to seminary, he said, he said, the experiences, he said, they were real. He said, he said, I don't doubt that. He said, the problem was, is what I was using that to, to do. Um, and, and again, whether, and in that conversation, it was one of the, you know, he and I talked about is, you know, it, you, you can't really tell someone, well, you didn't have that experience. I mean, you know, uh, you're not, no one's in a position to say, well, you didn't have this kind of private internal right. experience. I mean, you know, I mean, it'd be right. like, it's like me and, you, me and you sitting out on the beach watching a beautiful sunset and me look at me, and after this, afterwards, me looking at you and man, I cannot even, I can't even put in words the experience I just had with God there through the beauty of that sunset. And then you saying, no, that didn't happen. You know, well, maybe you didn't have the same response to the sunset as I did, but, we're, you know, neither of us would be in a position to say, well, no, you didn't have the experience. But the question Yeah, there's a difference. I'm, I'm thinking of like Joseph Smith being visit, you know, visited by God the Father and that. There's a difference between whether or not he thought he was being visited by that and whether or not he really was. I mean, he may have had that experience. Right. Uh, but that, right. you know, of course that wouldn't mean therefore the message is true. Right. And and that's and that's where you we have to have these there has to be something external to measure it by. And if there isn't you know, again, someone can say, "Hey, it was. I had this experience, but but I don't know what to do with it because I don't. I, I have no way to know whether it's true or not. And if you can't know it's true or not, um, you know, obviously, you know, there would be certain scenarios where we would know. Okay, you know, that couldn't be of Satan. You know, if if the person is saying, you know, something that is that is of the good, well, it seems that that wouldn't come from Satan." But if there is, you know, nothing externally to measure it by, even if we are saying that that might have been some experience of God, it would be impossible to know whether whatever that message was, is it true? Um, so, and I think that's the that, that's the sticking point that the individual will of God camp runs into is on these whether it's sign, whether it's um, some type of internal feeling, there would be nothing you could measure it against externally, whether it be scripture um, or some uh, something that you could n- know of God through natural theology. There's nothing like that that you could use to say, okay, yes, I know this is true. Let, let me ask you this, Brendan, because this is kind of tied into us. Uh, a lot of times when you watch TBN or even right behind my house, I mean, I've got Rick Joyner, Todd Bentley, 
uh, all these uh, teachers, and I would say false teachers, that uh, constantly claim God is giving them uh, certain revelations. What would you what what would you say to the audience uh, as they're watching someone like Benny Hinn or somebody on TBN, a prominent um, televangelist with a big voice, uh, when they're saying things like God told me, um, you know, if you give such and such amount then he's going to do such and such. What what would you say yeah. to that? Well, again, it's one of those, you know, there's kind of uh, one side to it of, all right, well, could God, does God have the ability to do that? Yes, God literally would have the ability to somehow supernaturally get that message to that individual who then conveys it on to individuals. I think a big thing we have to look at is, and this goes back into what we see from Scripture, where it talks about, you know, the message of a pro- of a of a prophet. Does he say right. anything that's false? If he says something that's false, well, he's not of God. Now, is the statement you have to give us money? Is that a, you know, is that a sinful thing? No. I mean, you know, you know, we look at Paul. You know, he travels around and attempts to raise money for the church in Jerusalem because of famine. So clearly there's a place for, you know, the church giving um, for, you know, for other people in the church or for people that are hurting. So, and I think you you would have to want to say, okay, you know, why are we giving this money? You know, what's this, if God's told you to give this money, again, we look at Paul, for example, surely he would have told you what the money's going to. What's it going to? Um, and then I think other things that can be looked at is, and for, for example, you know, with a guy like uh, Benny Hinn, for example, we can look at other things he says that we clearly could know that is true or false. And if it proves to be false, then he's not a prophet of God. So God would not be communicating to him to tell him to tell you to give money. So, you know, it's one of those things where I think, you know, the exact statement of, oh, God has told me, just that statement isolated, completely in isolation. Hmm, okay, maybe God did say that. Maybe. Maybe God, you know, just like he communicated with uh, a prophet of the Old Testament or with his apostles. Maybe he did that. It is possible, but that is where we have to evaluate the person as a whole. Right. Know, okay, you know, um, you know, I, I, I'm just being honest for myself. I'm probably even if the guy was backed up with everything, you know, completely, you know, every, everything the man teaches, everything he teaches, um, is uh, in accordance with scripture. I'm still going to be a little skeptical of it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess probably one of the other things I would want to know is, all right, so, uh, what's this money going to? Well, if it's just going to your pocket, well, you know, I just don't think that's what God's going to say. Um, now again, if what you plan to use this money for is, you know, hey, God told me to, that we needed to, uh, we needed to raise a thousand dollars to send down to the Oklahoma tornado victims. Okay. All right. Well, if God was going to make a revelation, that does sound like something God would do, you know, a message like that yeah. compared to a message like, well, you tell me to give me money so I can have a new sports car. Well, and again, that's where it, it is being more informed of theology in general. You know, the nature of God is 
is that something that would, you know, even granted it being possible, is that something God would say? Um, right. Anyway, I think, I think another thing we could look at is, you know, you, you look at um, the times God does reveal things to his prophets, um, to the apostles. You know, again, it's not saying that God can't, but it's that if God, if God was saying things like that to Moses, to Elijah, to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, to Paul and Peter, it's not recorded at least. I mean, again, maybe maybe that's what was happening and those, those just things weren't recorded in the Bible. Um, but it seems that um, that would be another strong indication that when God does reveal, those aren't the types of things that he reveals. Very good. Very good points. Well, we got a few minutes left here. Uh, wrap us up and um, tell us, give us a few points of how we can grow in wisdom, uh, and then I'll let you go ahead and, and take another minute or two and just tie it together for us. Tie the tie the whole sure. lecture tonight together. Sure, I for think us. Um, in terms of acquiring wisdom, um, there's really just you know the first one is actually seeking it. You know, um, I've actually uh, kind of been doing a series on this with the uh, youth at our church. You know. God doesn't have a cup of wisdom that he just pours into your head. That's not the that's not the way it works. So you do actually have to seek it. Um, get in Proverbs, you know, it says, you know, in Proverbs eight, um, this is actually wisdom talking here. I wisdom love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Um, in Proverbs two, if you seek it, I mean wisdom like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. So there's an element where we actually have to seek seek it. There's also, you know, a right attitude towards it. You know, I think of you know, we should have reverence. Um, in Proverbs 9:10, it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, we should be humble. Uh, Proverbs 11:2 says, "When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the but with the humble is wisdom. Um, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor." In Proverbs 15, um, we should have a, a, a kind of a, a, maybe disposition is the right word, a sense of being teachable. Um, Proverbs 9 says, give instructions to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Um, Proverbs 15:31, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So we should, we should, we should actually have this idea of being teachable. Um, we should have diligence. Uh, Proverbs 8:17 um, says, again, this is wisdom talking. Those who seek me diligently find me. Um, we should be upright. Proverbs two seven. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Um, and we should have, you know, there's an element of faith in that. Uh, James one five eight says, if anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Um, so, and then there is an element of kind of just having this right approach. Um, we should ask God for it. Again, out of James 1.5, we actually should ask God for it. And we should seek scripture um, as a great place to build wisdom. Um, Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my medica- med- excuse me, meditation. Um, and 2 Timothy 2.7 says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Um, there's an element of uh, even, you know, kind of personal research. You know, you think about uh, Nehemiah, you know, before he went in to rebuild, he inspected the broken walls before he planned. Uh, Joshua 
sent spies into Jericho to gather intelligence before the attack. So there is an element of uh, actually doing, you know, research you know, before making decisions. Um, wise counselors, you know, is a big one. You know, and I think there's kind of two types of counselors. There's uh, those with spiritual insight and those with life experience. Um, Proverbs 11 says, where there's no guidance of people fall, but in an abundance of counselors there's safety. Uh, Proverbs 13, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Um, then there's just the element of, of life itself, you know, learning through experience. I mean, you know, we're all human beings. You know, even you know, those of us are saved, we're still fallen. We're going to make mistakes. Um, you know, you have the common adage, um, you know, not even a biblical idea, strictly speaking, but, you know, learn from your mistakes. You know, there is wisdom gained in that. You know, there's wisdom in, you know, hey, you know, uh, I approached this situation and I failed at it. Well, I'm not going to go at it the exact same situation again. Um, again, basically, this is what's spoken of in Proverbs 6. You know, it says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food at harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Again, you know, the ant has learned what to do. You know, um, it, it prepares. So and I think those, you know, that really does um, prepare the person for it. Um, and all of that being couched in God's sovereign will, knowing that you know, even when I make a mistake, even if, you know, hey, I really thought through it, I really planned through it, but it backfired, knowing that God is still in control. That ultimately, you know, from the execution of Jesus to the rebellion of Adam and Eve, nothing surprises God. You know, all of those things taking place within his will and ultimately coming about, though we might not know how temporarily, for his good. Um, so I think there's a lot of encouragement in that idea, that even when, because that, I think that's the big risk with the wisdom of you. What if I mess up? What's going to happen when I mess up? Well, you will mess up, but you learn from it, and you can trust that God is still in control. Amen. Good stuff, man. We, uh, we're out of time, but I uh, appreciate you coming on the show. We Absolutely. plan to have you back for, for, for sure. Uh, those who... Uh, would like you can look on our archives and you'll find some of uh, uh, Brendan's uh, other show that he did on uh, the reliability of the Bible. So, Brendan, thanks for being with us and uh, we, will, we will have you on again. I appreciate right, it, man. Have God bless. All right, folks, and uh, next week we are going to be dealing with some arguments uh, with Thomas Aquinas and some arguments for God's existence. I also want to let you guys know, June 27th, we will be having a debate uh, with Nathan Taylor, who's been on the show a few times, um, one of one of our favorite guests. He's going to be de- uh, debating Jordan Fischel in a uh, dialogue-slash-discussion on Calvinism versus Molinism. And then in July, it looks like we are going to be doing another debate uh, with atheist Matt Dillahoney from the Atheist Experience. He will be on again. And uh, we're going to be dealing uh, with arguments for God's existence uh, with a good friend, Mike Willenborg, who's been on before and 
and debated the issue of Mormonism. So uh, thanks for joining us, and we look to seeing you next week. God bless. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical theology, theology study the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly.